Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. I'm Jehan Marku, and as usual, I'm joined with Nigam Aurora. How's it going, everyone? I'm doing well. I can't speak for all of our listeners, but they must be doing well if they're listening to this episode. We are also joined this week by our friends, David and Sarah. You might remember David Valancourt from previous episodes, the GMP guy. How you doing, David? Hey there, Jehan and Nigam. I'm doing very well, thanks. And also joining us again, researcher professor, Dr. Sarah Jane Ward. How are you today? I am fantastic and happy to be back with you all. Thank you. We have another great show. We have a couple pieces of news out of the cannabis and psychedelics world, and then two interesting articles. And we'll end with a game. We're going to play two out of three. I'm going to share a, a story, an article that came out recently. Um, and you're going to have to figure out which facts, which of the two statements I make are true and which one was completely made up. And believe me, at the end of this, you may want to puke because it's all about cannabis hyperemesis and cyclical vomiting syndrome. And I will be making that joke at least two more times. All right, so moving on to news. Um, one of the things that struck me recently is that um, the, the industry has realized that there isn't enough data uh, really to validate the CBD's effects in humans and a lot of the claims. Um, so why not just go into animals where there's even less information known? So now <laughs> elephants apparently will be given CBD to treat stress after the death of a companion, a, a Poland zoo says. It's apparently going to be giving an unknown amount of CBD to an African elephant. Um, and and it's, it's hoped that this mixed CBD oil will somehow help with cortisol levels to treat anxiety and stress. The core problem to me is that elephants never forget. So I assume that drinking would be the way to help an elephant with anxiety and PTSD. But then I realized I know very little about elephants and their endocannabinoid system. So, you know, Sarah, you research is, is your life. You, you've looked at it in different animals. Um, what are your thoughts on, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Like, how do we even think about dosing an animal like an elephant. I mean, there's, there's different considerations for mice as there is for humans. What's effective in a mouse may, well, might be way too potent for a human and so on. So what are your thoughts on the story coming out of a marijuana moment about elephants getting CBD for stress? Yeah, I, I'm so excited about this article that I don't know where to begin, but uh, a few things to share with you. Uh, so one thing uh, I can share with you is that the effects of CBD seem to be really strongly conserved across species. And so while most of the research that we do in our laboratory is with rats and mice, we also do experiments with planaria, which are a flatworm. And believe it or not, uh, flatworms can feel anxiety and when we test CBD uh, with those animals, we find that we can decrease anxiety in a flatworm. So I feel pretty confident that if we can decrease anxiety in a flatworm and a mouse and a human with CBD, uh, that there is, there is hope for elephants as well. And you mentioned the uh, dosing. That is such a huge mystery right now um, with humans and rodents. One thing that we notice is that we, we seem to use the same doses in mice and rats and humans, which is surprising and interesting and probably telling us something important about CBD's effects. So I don't know that it'll take too long to, to figure out. Cornell Labs is also, last thing I'll mention, Cornell Laboratories has done extensive studies with CBD in companion animals and they recommend the same doses of CBD in companion animals for anxiety as we have found to work in rats and in humans. Fascinating. Um, I had not realized uh, what it meant when people say these effects are, are conserved across species. And so it, it sounds like we can have some, there is some scientific basis here. We can predict what's going to happen with a certain degree of probability in an elephant. The elephant's not gonna freak out and stamp its horn and just go crazy. It is probably gonna feel relaxed because the system is um, very uh, conserved. Um, so uh, Nigam, let's, let's go to you. You know, you work in the industry, you see a lot of products, you do formulations. 
Um, do you think the, the elephant would prefer a coconut-based tincture or a pill? Do we put it in, uh, like, dip uh, peanuts in CBD? Uh, you don't have to really answer that question, but what are your thoughts here about this new story? Yeah, um, you cracked me up, Jehan. Anyways, <laughs> um, no, uh, a lot of thoughts coming out of this. So um, what Sarah said is really relevant. Uh, first thing I wrote down after I read this is, what is dose per kilogram body mass? So, you know, uh, under, you know, it's a very expensive treatment for an animal, uh, or for an elephant. If we're doing kilogram uh, by milligram, I mean, it's, whew, that's, well, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, you know, Sarah, Sarah could speak more to that. She was talking about, you know, you're trying to essentially when you're doing these mouse or, or rat studies, you're trying to replicate, uh, the human situation. So it's like, okay, we're going to a massive scale here, which, takes me to the second thing I wrote down um, in a little industry jargon. I wrote, what does the COA say? The certificate of analysis. So essentially, are we giving it, and it goes back to what you were saying, Jehan, are we giving this elephant um, pure CBD as an isolate? Uh, and if so, has it gone through some modification or encapsulation to make it more bioavailable as you see in all these you know water soluble or or increased bioavailability technologies on the market is it full spectrum is it straight cbd so is according there... to the article it is a, a mixed cbd oil so i'm gonna venture an educated guess and say it's a cbd rich extract so there probably will be other components um in it such as small amounts of thc cbn um you know so I think you bring up some good points, you know, um, one is who's paying for this? Are taxpayers in Poland, like really paying to dose this elephant with the CBD rich extract? And if not, why can't they pay for me and my relatives to be dosed with CBD extracts? I mean, this is basically insurance. Um, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, the last comment I would say, Jehan, is that um, something else that struck me from the article was it said, it was going to take two years to get any results that stood out to me just pretty largely. I, I just can't understand maybe two years to complete the study, but the way it was phrased, it seemed like they were saying two years to conclude anything. So I don't really get that part. Well, there's probably a lot of baselines, you know, so I, I would say that they don't know what they're doing. And so they probably have to take a lot of baseline measurements to figure out what direction things are moving to be able to justify that this treatment, um, and, uh, you know, David, you've been quiet. Um, you know, Nigam brought up some good points about um, what is on the COA, what is on the certificate analysis, what are in these products. Um, you know, uh, Sarah brought up some other points about dosing and, and you know, when you dose an animal, you're, you're weighing the animal and you're giving it a certain amount based on that weight. So uh, having a standardized product seems really important. Um, if you're going to dose something that weighs two tons. Yep. I, yes. And I would, uh, I was, uh, excited to feel like I almost had something to add, um, you know, being not in the clinical space and, uh, not having the, uh, the PhD behind me either, but thinking back to my master's wife and, uh, to your point with the C of A and the two year comment that, that Nigam brought up there, um, there's probably some poor graduate students sitting there churning through a lot of data, weighing a lot of stuff that they're adding into their, their, thesis or dissertation. And um, that includes very precise measurements that if we could only have in the um, legal, shall we say, industry here um, with level of precision, um, I think that would go a long way. So I'm, I'm happy to hear it'll perhaps take two years. It sounds like they're actually going to do some, some due diligence on it. Yeah, I think this will be really interesting. Um, and, and who knows, I mean, what we will learn from this and where this will take us um, with cannabidiol products. So we're going to shift gears and move on to our second news story that caught my eye recently that I would like to talk about. And this is about congressmen raising money to legalize psychedelic mushroom therapy. Now, this is a topic we've talked about on the show, about Oakland. Um, we've talked about it in the past. We've talked about it offline. But basically, we're starting to see a crossover, or perhaps a predictable one, of cannabis industry folks in a high-risk area with murky regulations and whatnot to again, hey, here's another schedule one product with also murky regulations. Um, so it's not surprising you might see the same advocates and regulators involved in a, navigating that space. But 
you know, one of the chief advocates for marijuana reform in Congress is formally throwing his support behind an Oregon initiative to legalize psilocybin mushrooms for therapeutic purposes and is helping to raise money for the campaign. For those of you who have been in the cannabis space for a while, it is no surprise that it is Representative Herb Blumenauer, um, Democrat from Oregon. He's done a lot of interesting things, been a lot involved in a lot of stuff like defunding the DEA's um, money to go after legal cannabis operations. Um, but he's again looking at this thing called Measure 109 to give Oregonians who suffer from depression and anxiety the opportunity to overcome their mental health challenges through a program designed for safety and support. Um, so this measure is going to go on the ballot. Um, it might win in November, it just needs the resources to educate voters about its benefits and protections. Um, you know, Nigam, not a lot of people know that you do have a, a, a bit of a background and knowledge base in psychedelics. Um, you know, I have a couple questions here for the group to think about. One is, is what do people need to be educated about in order to vote yes or no um, on legalizing psilocybin therapy? Um, Nigam, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, good question, Jehan. So uh, education, as you mentioned, is definitely a, a big factor. So we see a lot of people talking about legalizing, decriminalizing these different uh, methods of people using psychedelics for, you know, X, Y, and Z. But um, so, so far as your question about like, what what is at issue here? Yeah, I think um, education and then also kind of like a, a controlled rollout when these things begin to change is important. Absolutely. Um, great points. Uh, David, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, if you could go in, you know, as you've, you know, advised on cannabis standards and stuff like that, um, what would you want voters to know about benefits and protections from a, you know, a program like this? Yeah, thanks. Uh, great question, Jehan. You know, I would start with let's not forget that in November, I believe, the FDA uh, recognized breakthrough therapy for um, severe depression uh, by using psychedelic psilocybin. So, you know, that, I think that's a really important start, uh, start there, um, which probably aligns with the uh, senator's um, you know, mission there. And uh, you know, we, we can use that and we can use the clinical trials and we can use the botanical drug guidelines for that the FDA has published. So again, this is not something that we don't have precedent for, don't have any framework for, um, but let's follow there and let's go back to the C of A conversations. Let's chart the dosage that we're giving these folks. Uh, let's chart the outcomes, whether there's adverse events or otherwise. Let's try to get some data on what were they eating? What was their mind state? What was their, you know, uh, all the data that we're going to go into later with some of the articles, you know, their, their profile, their demographics, um, so we can actually understand. Um, and it really, again, for an education standpoint to the folk, the, the voters going to ballot, um, think about this from a harm reduction standpoint too, right? And um, are we doing any good by having this as an illegal drug that we're prosecuting and putting people in jail for versus are we providing a pathway as imperfect as it will be um, to create data and uh, positive outcomes. So now, th that's a really good point, uh, David. Some university of, universities have already generated some research showing that psilocybin can be helpful. I, you know, Sarah, I remember from my very, very first CPDD meeting, the College on Problems of Drug Dependence, they had, and this was, gosh, um, this is an ancient history. <laughs> we don't need to talk about how long ago it was, but it was a long time ago. Um, maybe 2006-ish, 2007-ish, 2008-ish, um, uh, there was a presentation on LSD and psilocybin for uh, smoking cessation um, and things like that. And so I know this has been an interesting topic of researchers. The first question I want to ask you, though, is if you were going to educate voters, is there a recent article or something you'd say, hey, everyone, look this up, you should read this? Um, what would you recommend people read to educate themselves? Yeah, so um, in preparation for these podcasts, because now I know we're going to talk about psychedelics more often, uh, I've been doing that on my own. Um, and you're right. So, you know, you and I have a shared experience of attending these College on 
problems of drug dependence meetings, and we've seen a lot of exciting um, talks by, you know, the lead researchers in the field of substance abuse. And we know that some of the top substance abuse researchers are looking at psychedelics as a therapy um, for affective disorders as well as for substance use disorder. So I've been checking in recently on, you know, the current findings and it is it is tough because I get asked this question a lot with cannabinoids. You know, what what should I be reading? How can I find good information? And I don't want to point people to overly scientific articles that are going to make their eyes glaze over. But sometimes I think that people should try it <laughs> again. I yeah. sound like Trump. Try it. Um, you know, you're, you'll probably understand more than you think. Um, so there is a recent article published in the American Journal of Psychiatry entitled Psychedelics and Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy. And this is an article called a meta-analysis where they go into the literature and they try to find what's been done. And they found that there were over 1000 articles published on the effects of LSD, MDMA, um, ayahuasca, as well as psilocybin for the treatment of mood disorders and addiction. Then what they do is they toss out all the ones that they think weren't very rigorously done. And they zeroed it down to about 160 articles that they consider to be well done clinical studies on this topic and uh, determined that at least for MDMA and psilocybin, there's a decent amount of clinical evidence out there that they may be effective MDMA for the treatment of PTSD and psilocybin, again, for mood disorders and for substance abuse disorder. Um, the, the story on LSD and ayahuasca is still more sort of at the observational level as far as what's been done with humans to study this. But there is a lot of good, solid data being done in humans on these drugs. Um, you know, there's also a lot of very solid research done on their potential adverse effects. And, you know, the, we always need to keep that in mind and make sure we're doing something that's safe and balance this massive unmet need in our population with keeping people safe. Fantastic breakdown. Um, and, and I agree with the safety question because, um, you know, there is some interesting stuff in the literature, Sarah, as, as someone who's a fan of how do different drugs combine to interact, uh, perceptions of intoxication um, when combining psychedelics with alcohol is, is a very interesting subject where people could be drink twice as much as they normally do and they don't even realize how intoxicated uh, they might be. Uh, so there's some, some definitely some safety issues and guidelines there. Um, but a follow-up question, you know, some of our listeners may not know why you throw out research. Like, why wouldn't you do a global analysis of all available data? Is it, you know, in just a kind of a simple fundamental way, I'm sure there's merits to saying, okay, what does the total trend look like? But why don't we, you know, I guess my question is, I would want to see what the global data said for and what their filter data said. Could you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, so the, the, the rationale for um, doing this is one important one, uh, which is very important, again, for cannabis research, is to rule out bias um, and in both directions. And so just the wording of the introduction of an article can give you an idea of whether these investigators <laughs> right. expect, you know, expect something to work, not to work. Um, and then just things like how many people, is this a case study of one person? Um, the products, do we have information? I don't know about how relevant this is for the psychedelics, but again, for cannabinoids, if it's cannabis and they're not telling you what the strain is, what the composition is, what was the route of administration. If there's not enough information in the article to feel like you know we're confident with what they're doing. Uh, but you're right, I, I think it's important to, to check everything out, but this is a nice way to filter out in a scientific fashion red flags that might skew the story one way or another. Very, very cool data uh, or you know cool idea 
to do with data. Um, you know, and I like that, you know, getting rid of bias. If an article starts off with a scourge afflicts America from sea to shining sea and its name is marijuana, you're like, yeah, it might be a little biased. Uh, maybe we don't want to include that. Uh, but it's also good to keep this stuff in mind and looking at trends as well. Um, great, great points. Um, so we're going to tr transition to our third news story. Our last news story is about Republicans and they're blasting Democrats on their cannabis policy like they're cheap weed in a glass tube in their living room. They're saying, uh, Democrats say they aren't going to legalize cannabis, they're going to decriminalize it and move it to Schedule 2, which sounds like a great way to criminalize all members of the industry because then you can trigger the powers of the FDA, right, to go after groups that are selling non-FDA approved products. Uh, but both parties seem to offer a whole lot of nothing when it comes to cannabis policy. And maybe it's just not a big enough issue with everything that's going on, but maybe it is. It's just a confusing time for cannabis policy. You know, with the, the RNC, a board member of President Trump's uh, reelection campaign, according to the Marijuana Moment, uh, claimed that the Democrats' push for universal health care is really about ensuring a right to cannabis access. You know, Democrats love to talk about health care being a human right, but a right to what? Well, I'll tell you. To them, it's a right to marijuana, opioids, and the right to die with dignity. I was like, it doesn't sound that bad. I mean, is that a slight or is she like saying we're going to solve this legalization problem? It's, it's, it's just so confusing because you have a dem Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, opposes adult, adult use legalization, which to me, a legalization to me now in my, you know, after years in this industry, just means developing a product approval pathway. Uh, for federal approval, for national approval. That's what legalization really means, is, is lots and lots and lots of regulation. Um, but instead wants to decriminalize cannabis possession, which I feel like has already happened in most places. Um, and, and, you know, and, and Senator Kamala Harris is, you know, I mean, she just said over the weekend, you know, after the RNC that a policy is going to be about decriminalizing um, cannabis or marijuana. Um, you know, so They've already shown that they don't support legalization bills and other things that would have assisted the cannabis industry during this time. It's such a weird time. I don't even know how to, you know, guide people out there making choices. Um, you know, David, how do you think voters, if, if cannabis is a big issue for them coming election day, what do you make of what's going on here with the Democratic and Republican platforms around cannabis? Oh, I'm glad you asked me at least a semi-pointed question because I was, and I'm also glad that you let me go first because I, I just know as more comments come in, I'm going to get more fired up. So let me let me try to breathe here and uh, provide some fair and balanced, uh, shall we say, for lack of a better ironic term here. You know, to start to answer your question, you know, uh, if you're if you're going to vote based on uh, cannabis reform and expectations you might as well just figure out how to sneak across the border into Canada because you'll probably be a bit happier. Um, <clears throat> I don't think anybody can really have expectations from a federal standpoint of anything happening soon. And, and you, you really, I think your point is well heard, Jehan, that, um, you know, what this is like symbolic. I mean, most places have already decriminalized it. Um, the FDA and the DEA are only taking discretionary enforcement against even on the businesses side, you know, folks that are uh, basically being in blatant um, uh, disregard or uh, you know blatantly ignoring the Food, Drug, and uh, Cosmetics Act, where you know they're trying to advertise CBD products as you know cancer curing agents, etc., um, that you can buy at your 7-Eleven. Which man, if I could cure um, you know from just getting a Slurpee and CBD at my 7-Eleven, wow, you know we're <laughs> Sarah. I don't know what you've been doing all this time, but come on. So you know I, I think that's. Uh, yeah, I think I should just stop there while I'm ahead and um, let somebody else chime in. Sarah, a lot of questions I'd want to ask you as a researcher about this, but maybe I'll try to start with a pointed simple one is, if cannabis is moved to Schedule 2, um, would it change your life forever? Like, I mean, it would just everything would be better and, you know, just everything wouldn't be the same ever again? Like, what, would, what would life be like in the lab if Schedule was, if it was you know, cannabis was rescheduled and all the cannabinoids were suddenly scheduled too. Would, would it change that much for you in the immediate sense? No, it might save me like $100 a year because I wouldn't have to have as expensive of a drug safe and my 
DEA license would be cheaper to renew. Uh, but, for, but for me as an animal researcher, it's very easy for me to access the tools that I need to test in rats and mice. Would it make life easier for clinical researchers? Absolutely. But again, what we talked about last time um, for clinical research, the biggest need is product. And the biggest change that needs to be made is really not on you know scheduling down, but making different types of cannabis cultivars available for research and getting the funding there. Just increasing, I, I don't think that cannabis being schedule one is actually the biggest impediment right now to clinical research. I think there are so many other impediments. Um, but it, I mean, logically it should be done. Uh, it, it makes absolute zero sense for it to remain as a schedule one. But I think so many other changes need to take place aside from changing it to a schedule two um, to enhance research. We have other compounds that are schedule one that a lot of research goes on with. So I don't think that that's, you know, the main thing uh, that holds it back. You're absolutely right, um, Sarah, you know, and one of our fellow CPDDers, uh, Bertha Madras, has even said that just simply moving cannabis to rescheduling it, rescheduling it, um, she says it's a myth that it would actually facilitate research. And this is someone who's very anti-cannabis industry. And uh, I thought that was a surprising thing for her to say in, in, a in an interview about a year or two ago. I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, but also, you know, you bring up a point that you've made many times is that you cannot get products that people are actually using for research, maybe epidiolex, maybe uh, for research, but still very difficult. But, you know, what most adults can purchase as easily as beer, you can't bring in the lab. You can't, you can't see if a, a rat, you know, gets benefits or develops adverse effects from these products. Yeah, it's, it's. Yeah, and that won't change. That wouldn't change if it became Schedule Two. It's still a difference between federally regulated and state regulated. It's because the state products are still federally illegal. So that's the bear. You know, it, and it reminds me so much of the psilocybin conversation: is do I want states to move ahead with this in isolation from changes in federal? Is it good? to at least have it move forward in states, at some point that whole barrier needs to disappear so that we can move seamlessly between federally funded academic institutions and statewide policies. Excellent, Sarah. Sounds like a busy day in the lab there. Lots going on. So, um, Nigam, you know, before we move on and take a little break to talk about research, you know, what what should voters want out of uh, uh, their representatives for cannabis? What should they be, you know, if they had a chance to push for it, what would you ask for? Um, what would you want to see? Um, you know, I, I don't know if you're voting for, you know, Palpatine or Obi-Wan Kenobi in this, so I don't want to get too political, but what would you ask of your, your, your party's nominee? Yeah, that's a, uh, it's an excellent question. And um, I, I'm not going to, uh, I don't really like to delve into the political lines here. You know, thanks, David, for taking that one on the head. But, um, yeah, no, this is a good question because it's kind of neutral for anyone, despite your um, political orientation. What should any reasonable human be wanting from their politician? So here's a couple of things. I would want my politician to be informed, to understand that this is an issue that has to do. There, there's a lot of facets in this issue that I would want politicians to be informed about. One is that to a lot of people, this is medicine. It's, you know, they're not taking pharmaceuticals. They're using cannabis and different types of cannabis for therapeutic purposes. Uh, so that should always be considered. The other thing is that there is a big uh, competition globally right now for uh, cannabis innovation, cannabis supply, uh, these kind of things. So as we move forward, there, there's an angle to it that's less about politicized internal things and more about 
how does America compete on the world stage for this burgeoning global industry that's going to permeate so many aspects of life? So I, I guess I'll leave it there because there's a lot <laughs> that's missing in the current political landscape just on those two fronts. You know, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a false narrative right now. It's actually such a bipartisan issue. Um, and it's just, you know, you keep, how much can you believe from either party during the RNC and DNC and run up to the election? So much rubbish is thrown out. Um, so I think the reason why there's so many conflicting things, Biden thinks this, Harris thinks that, Trump says this, but he did that, because I don't really think cannabis honestly is a very partisan issue. If you think about, you know, it's Mitch McConnell who led the hemp bill. Um, so I think it's good news <laughs> that it's relatively yeah, it's like, bipartisan. It's, that's actually, you bring up a good point. Maybe that's why they're just batting it around is because they both, it's not like a big enough issue and they're both going to walk that middle ground, you know, because it's, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe this is the point is we can't, if that's a deciding issue for you, it's going to be very hard for you to decide where they stand. Like if you're a business owner, if you're a, res you're a stakeholder, yeah, how do you vote in your interest? You know, it's, it's very difficult, but good point. Well, we're going to go on to our next segment here, Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing some commentary and discussion about articles we've identified um, that we feel are either timely or are going to have a, an impact. So we have two topics. The first one is on opioid use in cannabis. And the next one we're going to talk about is about cannabis use disorders and how it affects the chances of death in a hospital setting. So you definitely want to stay tuned for that one. So our first story comes out of Canada. And my first question is, what is in Canadian cannabis? New data shows associated reductions in IV opioid use associated with frequent cannabis use. That is to say, a group of researchers in three different populations in Vancouver evaluated the impact of frequent cannabis use on injection sensation and injection relapse among people who inject drugs. Um, to uh, the authors, I think the pullout quote we can say about this study from the paper is, quote, to our knowledge, this is the first longitudinal study to identify a positive association between cannabis use and cessation of injection drug use. This um, was published in the American Journal of Public Health it is entitled Frequent Cannabis Use and Cessation of Injection Opioids, Vancouver, Canada, 2005 to 2018. You know, this is such an interesting story. Um, you know, maybe Sarah, you want to kick this off. You know, the drug abuse cycle it does, isn't just about are you taking the drug or are you not? There, there's a whole cycle there and knowing where the, where the intervention can help. You know, what, where do you intervene in the drug abuse cycle? Where do you intervene... How do you prevent the stress that triggers a relapse? There's so many questions here. Um, and we talked about good data and bad data earlier. And for me, just to see a blanket statement like, hey, you have access to, you smoke cannabis more than four times, or you take a cannabis product more than four times a week, you're a frequent user, and they're seeing this trend. What are your thoughts on this paper? Yeah, I, I think this paper is um, intriguing. Uh, it definitely begs for more research. And so, I, you know, like always, I have a million things I want to say about it. But I'll point out one thing that you know, leads back to what I mentioned before about biased research. So here's a great example. When I was a graduate student in the early 2000s, one of the big stories was the gateway hypothesis from cannabis to heroin use. And a lot of our colleagues in the substance abuse field were trying to test this in animals. This starts out with an inherent bias. How can I model and demonstrate that THC is going to make rats like heroin more? And I think really unknowingly and innocently, we start to design the experiments and try to do them every which way to see it happen. And it doesn't happen, and it hasn't been demonstrated in the animal models. What's more important is to look at the actual human observation. What do we see people doing? And then let's try to test that in animals. So I like this study and these results 
we can focus in on relapse, as you were saying, because there, it's true that there are so many different components. Are you, are you talking about, is someone going to like heroin more or less if they're a cannabis user? Are they going to become a heroin abuser if they have a history of cannabis use? There's so many different iterations. So stick with the specific observed phenomenon in humans and then start teasing that apart and studying it. Uh, and we have animal models of relapse. So let's try to focus on that and let's see what is going on. The other interesting thing I'll point out quickly is that uh, right now CBD is in clinical trials in the United States for opioid relapse. So these are studies coming out of Yasmin Hurd's lab in New York. Um, and the, the um, early clinical data that she has released are astonishing. Uh, and again, it's, a, it's one small study in people, but single or subacute dosing, you know, just a little bit of CBD has statistically significantly decreased relapse to opioid use in this clinical trial so far. So what's in the Canada uh, cannabis CBD? I don't know. I don't that, know. That was going to be my question. Uh, what What is in the cannabis they're using? Because Canada has a totally different environment from us. There is no marketing Wild West shenanigans up there. It's nationally regulated. It, the, there's a higher standard. There's a more regulated products. Uh, people may actually know what they're getting when they're consuming a CBD product up there. I mean, crazy expectations for someone making a, a therapeutic product for you to know what's in it. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is... I, I like this study, but I, I hear your hesitation, sir. It's a little bit of a black box approach. Um, uh, and there are some things that could shape up this research. Um, you know, David Nigam, you guys have, I see you pondering the data in the study. I see it in your eyes. Um, it's amazing what you can do with Zoom. I can, I can really tell when you guys are thinking. Um, what, what do you mean, Jayhan? <laughs> I'm sitting right next to you. <laughs> uh, the, Negev, since you spoke first, what are, what's your impression of this study? Do you, um, do you think a study in Canada on Canadian cannabis translates to benefits that we might we might see the same thing in the U.S.? So um, yeah, no, I I'm excited to speak on this. Actually, I read it in detail, and couple I actually made a pros cons list. So a couple different things. One thing that I thought was a big pro is that this is from a sample size of 2,500 respondents. So um, if listeners will recall my comments on, on the last uh, uh, or one of our recent recordings, I was, I kind of always bring up this thing about, mm, well, there's only 20, 20 people on this study, or they'll take like a meta study and they'll snip out the cannabis part and then they'll publish a new paper. So this was, um, was different in that way. And then similarly, uh, it's from a 13 year span. So yeah. that's kind of, those two things were both encouraging to me that the data, it, it just gave a more even sample size in my view. Uh, yeah. So and the, the cannabis sample size, I don't know if they did this on purpose, but it's actually the frequent cannabis users are six, six, six. Is that a coincidence that they were using the devil's lettuce and they had actually uh, 666 daily cannabis users in this study? This might be the type of information that's used to change things. You know, there's a lot of case studies out there. Um, nobody really cares. It doesn't help with drug approval. It doesn't help with regulatory issues. But maybe this type, what I'm hearing from what you're saying is the size of this study alone is, is enough to take pause. So, well, I, I've been reading to you off my pros list. Uh, maybe I should go to my cons list. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the... Um, the, the big con here is that the data is nonspecific to some degree for a couple of reasons. One, because it's largely self-reporting um, and some of these people only responded one time. So sure, you know, it's like I, in my pros, like I do like the data set, but it's not, you know, clinical trial data or preclinical or pseudoclinical. It's um, very much this kind of self-reporting. It's, it's a little bit of a different thing. A um, couple other comments I want to make just uh, for, from things I noticed before I respond to your immediate question, Jehan, of if these type of studies will uh, affect change. 
one thing that I thought was really interesting was that they're showing that it helped reduce it helped folks who were injecting opioids. It did not show statistical relevance for folks injecting stimulants. Now, I think on a biochemical level, that makes sense. And actually, uh, Sarah, did you want to chime in about that? Yeah, I was going to say that the same thing is observed in animal studies that we, uh, with with CBD at least, that we see no effect of CBD on relapse to cocaine seeking in a rat, uh, but we do with opioids. You know, and I would say conceptually, if you want to see what how this takes shape in human populations, go to Amsterdam. The coffee is sold right next to the cannabis. Like that's why they call them coffee shops. I mean. I don't think it's necessarily a, a coincidence. It might be a physiological drive. Like, what's the first thing that happens in Amsterdam after you use cannabis? I want a stimulant. I want some coffee. Or, you know, hopefully that's where it ends. But, Nigam, um, I, I love your, your con list. Those, those are great points. Um, and it is interesting, the questions they asked about non-injection drugs, um, whether or not they sold illicit drugs in the past, whether or not they even had access to treatment. And that was a surprising factor, too. Like, something like one-fifth of the respondents did not, in all categories, did not have access to any sort of um, drug treatment program, which is a little frightening. So, and then uh, just, to, just to list one more pro and one more con before I kind of cap, um, uh, another con, like you said, is that, um, or, or excuse me, uh, a pro is that they collected all this data on these other aspects of these people's lives. So you can kind of, uh, through the statistical relevance, you can sort what matters and what didn't. And they actually did that. And they showed like some of these things that didn't matter and some of these things that did. So I think that's really important to kind of remove confounding factors or at least try. Um, I will uh, share one thing, Jahan, back to your initial question for me, like, will this affect change, right? So there was a, a snippet that I, that I just copied and pasted into my notes here that I'm just going to read uh, to the audience. So it says, they, they had this big thing in the paper, which was that they basically put cannabis use in two buckets. There's the bucket of at least daily use, which means these people are smoking or, or consuming edibles, whatever, every single day, if not more than once a day. And everything else, once a year, once a month, once a week, once every other day, it all goes in another bucket. And so here's their sentence about it that I thought was pretty powerful. It says, users appear to use cannabis for a specific therapeutic purpose and were significantly more likely than less than daily users to report using cannabis to reduce pain, insomnia, stress, and nausea or loss of appetite. So that was a big takeaway for me that there is this delineation. And I had said it earlier in this podcast episode that when we were talking about politicians and what do I want politicians to know? I wanted to know that for some people, this is medicine. And I, I think that that stood out to me in the study that, you know, there's a, a range of reasons people use injectable drugs and, and it's often an unfortunate circumstance, but for some folks who understand that for them, cannabis is a medicine to them, be it mental, be it physical, and they're using it purposefully to reduce other harm, like an injectable drug, that's important. So that was a big takeaway for me. Great. I, I really, you know, like what you guys are bringing up. Um, and, and David, I, I can see you bubbling. Uh, but, the, you know, the one thing that um, I, I want to throw out there, too, that came to mind is binge use. Binge use with alcohol, binge use with substances. Maybe that's how we should. Our next story is going to be about cannabis use disorder. So start thinking about that because maybe the criteria for cannabis use disorders needs to be adjusted to take into account daily use that is less problematic um, versus maybe binge use of cannabinoids is the issue where you're like, I'm going to have 10,000 milligrams on Saturday. Maybe that's not great for your system versus a standardized dose. Um, David, you've been patient. What are your thoughts on this study? Yeah, you know, I, I had a, quite a few thoughts, but really hearing what uh, Nigam and Sarah said, I'd like to try to tie that back and, uh, you know, kind of add to that, which, you know, I, I started trying to read between the lines and, you know, what aren't they saying here? And uh, full disclosure, too, it's important to note that the National Institute of Health, uh, you know, U.S.-based, did uh, partially fund that study. There was a grant for it. And, you know, 
we're looking for biases and whatnot. Um, I don't think that's a significant bias, but that is worth noting based on the directives that the US has to work within for cannabis research. Um, but back to what they didn't say is that, um, you know, it doesn't appear to make things worse, right? Um, where there is insignificance or, you know, statistically insignificant data, none of that said using cannabis regularly made anything worse. So back to the harm reduction, wow, it's not making things worse, you know? So I think it's really important to look at that and, and, and walk away that's a that great, too. That's a great point, David. Sarah, I, I want to ask you this. Do you, would they have to run another statistical analysis on this data to be able to support the claim that David would like them to make with this paper that is, well, if there's not a significant effect, maybe it means it's, it's not a significant risk factor in this area. Um, what would you think about, Sarah, could you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, hopefully they're applying their statistics in what we call a two-tailed fashion and that they're running the statistics to look for effects in both directions. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I'm not familiar with doing these types of analysis, analyses on clinical uh, observational research. Uh, the statistics in, uh, you know, over a thousand or would you say 2000 patients is so different than when I do statistics on 36 rats. Um, you know, the other thing to highlight is with these massive studies where there are so many people to have to reach statistical significance the effects can be really small <laughs> so you know when i look at human studies and you see the effect size and then they say it's statistically different you're like are you kidding me i wish i could say that about my animal studies the the magnitude of the difference has to be huge when you have a, a few rats um so you know, I like to look at the numbers and I also like to, it's really important quality of life measurements, other things aside from just like number of days, like it could be totally statistically significant for you to last six days before you relapse to lasting eight days before you relapse. Okay, hmm. how, how important is that and how relevant is that to treating substance use disorder. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. One of the things I, I'm writing down is I want to bring on an observational researcher. I do have a colleague at NYU who's done stuff with like on, on e-cigarette use and some cannabis stuff. I might want to bring um, Dr. Manuel on the show and we could we could grill her to death with all these observational works because the in my experience the bulk of the publications out there are on cannabis, especially drug use, are observational um, work. Um, speaking of drug dependence and dosing and, and it, you know, using cannabis every day, cannabis use disorder is, is a significant issue that I think the, the world will have to address in a meaningful way sooner or later. Is it perfect? Um, you know, probably not. Everything needs to change. And so I want to talk about this necessity briefly, and then we're going to go to the game. We are almost out of how to launch an industry time, but this study, um, basically it showed that cannabis use disorder was associated with a decreased chance of death in a hospital setting. Basically cannabis use is associated with reduced hospital deaths due to heart failure. Um, and so this was from scientists at Brookdale University Hospital and Medical Center in New York. And they demonstrated uh, cannabis use disorders were associated with reduced hospital deaths in patients suffering from congestive heart failure. Um, this was a nationwide inpatient sample um, from 2010 to 2014, over 4 million patients, um, and 23,000 of them were diagnosed with cannabis use disorder. Um, you know, this is very interesting to me, um, you know, that these authors concluded that cannabis use disorders were associated with reduced inpatient deaths. Um, you know, David, uh, I, I want to go to you a little bit here. Um, you know, with the last study, you know, we saw that daily use was associated with a health benefit. And maybe it doesn't really matter so much what we call cannabis use disorder, but um, is that it's a way to identify and understand problematic use. But what are your thoughts on this study um, with the re association with reduced hospital deaths? 
Yeah, you know, and, and I think that like just dovetails perfectly um, with what Sarah said before in terms of like the eight days versus six days, right? Uh, you know, there's something to think about there. Did they get out within five days versus four? And um, I, I think uh, from a health standpoint, we could maybe debate that. Um, certainly on an aggregate scale, however, from a healthcare cost, which I can't help but think about a lot, that is pretty damn significant, right? So if we want to talk dollars and cents here, that's pretty darn big. So um, let's go throw that to some, you know, politicians and say, hey, you want to reduce the cost? Well, there's some evidence here that, you know, a 20% decrease in hospital bills uh, or so, I think I forget the exact number, you know, that's significant. Um, you know, and the way I would summarize it is uh, back to, you know, statistics can kind of tell you uh, what you want it to in many ways, depending on how you look. Um, you know, correlation does not always mean causation, but what I took away from it, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, more qualified people perhaps to, to chime in here, but, you know, healthier people have a lower chance of dying. Um, I think that's one thing that we can all agree and take away. Everything in moderation. And, you know, there is a lot of, you know, without uh, pulling any specific snippets in there, there is an obvious link that they talked about. And, uh, you know, you could read in the data between cannabis and alcohol use, right? So uh, that's looking at confounding variables. Um, that's that's kind of just, again, uh, but I, again, I like the end of the day. One, let me just say, I love that they're utilizing existing available data. It's nice to see that there's so much data out there. I love data, but it can be overwhelming. They used it for something uh, beneficial here and found some meaningful outcomes. Um, and it helps support what a lot of us will anecdotally want to say every day. So that that's kind of nice, but um, yeah. Thank you, David. Um, yeah, Sarah. Um... You know, I, I see the utility of, of COD, of the cannabis use through disorder system. It gives you some sort of way to measure it. Um, you know, uh, what are your thoughts on, one, the title of this article that was um, published in Curious, right? I, I kind of feel like I have a problem with the way they use cannabis use disorder associated. <laughs> it just, it kind of seems controversial from the get-go. Are they, are, they, are they showing a bias here? Are they trying to give a little backhand to people? By using this or you know it just seems like a weird title to me to why not just say cannabis use is associated why why say a use disorder is associated with a beneficial outcome yeah so it's strange because in in one way i give them credit for trying to quantify um you know and i think uh, either you or david mentioned this it's like it's another way of saying we know what their use is like because they've met the criteria for cannabis use disorder. But then it's unfortunate that maybe, or maybe it's unfortunate that we think it's unfortunate because of the stigma that we associate with the expression cannabis use disorder. Uh, you know, one takeaway from the article or something that reminds me of something I would want to say to everybody is look up cannabis use disorder. It's, it's new to the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual version. Um, I, it's fantastic that the DSM has been updated in the substance use disorder area. They have corrected so many uh, mistakes that they've made with confounding you know, uh, dependence and abuse and making definitions that may be pertinent for to some substances of abuse and not others. So there have been a lot of improvements to that section of the DSM. And you know, the, the new part is that they include the criteria for cannabis use disorder. They list the different criteria and they also have a new rating scale of mild, moderate to severe. So if you meet two or three, it's mild if you meet, you know, and I don't remember the specific numbers, but there's a gradation now for all substances so that it's not just, all right, you have substance use disorder. There's a way to, you know, categorize that. And there's a specific uh, cannabis withdrawal syndrome designation now because it used to be when we would think about withdrawal, people think about alcohol withdrawal or opioid withdrawal and how nasty both of those are which would lead people to say, well, there's no such thing as cocaine withdrawal or there's no such thing because you're not vomiting and have diarrhea and all of these other things. Um, but, you know, the, the withdrawal syndrome from 
cannabis use is really what makes it a cannabis use disorder in many ways and for many people. So I would like people to, you know, look it up, look up the diagnostics and statistics manual and see what, how they describe cannabis use disorder. And then just really briefly, it's very important for us to follow the story between cannabis use and cardiovascular health, because it is true that there are rising frightening associations of high THC cannabis use in young males and some very scary cardiovascular events. Yet at the same time, there's a lot of evidence with the anti-inflammatory and other properties of cannabis that it could have some very positive effects. So this is a really important area to look toward when we think about safety and e efficacy of cannabis. I, I love that. And I would love to see the, the cannabis use to sort of be able to differentiate between someone using it every day in sort of a, what do you want to call it, an acceptable amount versus identifying problematic use, which, you know, I think would be doing 10,000 milligrams of T THC every weekend. It's like, well, I only use it once a day, but you're like, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, you know, it's like the question, is it better to drink, you know, a bottle of wine on Saturday or have a glass, you know, every day, or you know, it's probably a pared down analogy, but, um, you know, uh, Nigam, before we go to playing two out of three, what are your thoughts on this interesting article? Yeah, so, Jehan, I really like how you kind of paired these two articles together in Rapid Fire Science, and I'm actually going to draw some comparisons between the two. So, as I was complimenting the former article, here's some things uh, that, that I liked about it. So, one, this was in Vancouver, and they said right in the intro to the article, in 2000, so they started collecting data in 2005 for that, and they said in 2006, uh, cannabis was effectively decriminalized if there's no complaint or whatever. Um, and additionally, these questions were being asked in kind of a social work setting um, where, and they're also acting, asking about injecting drugs, homelessness, abuse, all this kind of stuff, right? So it seems to be more of an open and honest forum, right? And in a place where there's not a fear of the law. So I'm going to contrast that to this current study that we're looking at where um, this is questions that people are, they, they pulled this data from questionnaires that people are filling out or their families filling out as they're going into the hospital for congestive heart failure, right? Or for having some heart issue. And we have all these uh, problems in America where cannabis was not decriminalized. So these people are worried about their jobs. They're worried about the law. They're worried about their insurance. They're worried about the stigma. And maybe they use cannabis every day, but their family member who drove them to the hospital doesn't know that because of stigma because of the U.S., right? So for me, um, it's a little bit apples and oranges in that regard that uh, I don't know how clean that data is about, hey, what are these people really telling you? Uh, about their past. So um, the other thing that I think is extremely relevant, and actually the authors of um, this second paper call it out in the uh, uh, in, in their kind of section about limitations. And they say, um, I'm just going to read from the article, there is unavailability of patient level information. Therefore, adjustments for co-founders could not be performed during analysis. So you recall that that's something I complimented about the former article, that they went in there and they did the stats and they said, uh, of all these potentially co-founding things, homelessness, age, X, Y, and Z, what can we statistically uh, cut out or what should we wait or, or how does it all work? In this case, they're just saying we can't even try. So um, uh, I think you, I think you're, you guys are, are feeling what, what I'm picking up when I put down about this article. I, I personally am not putting a lot of stake behind this, but um, th those are some of my thoughts. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. This is an interesting article. I wouldn't um, start to change policy and say it's safe across the board for cardiovascular health. There's something here, there, there's some factors. And uh, maybe David made the best point of all is there's less of a chance of death and other complications in healthy people. And so getting kind of that baseline health information, do they have metastatic cancer? Do they have renal failure? Are they having these other comorbidities or are they just happening to look at a 
random slice of cannabis users that are in generally good health. Um, and that's just a, a poor sampling of the population. Um, great points, everyone. Fantastic. So today's game is two out of three. I'm going to share a short real article with two real factoids from the article and one that I made up. And our participants job today, Nigam, Sarah, and David, is to suss out which one that I made up. So a recent article entitled Patterns of Use in Patients with Cyclic Vomiting Syndrome came out of the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology, the official journal of the American Gastroenterological Society. So they reported that in some patients with cyclical vomiting syndrome, cannabis use uh, is, is used to really stress and for its properties in terms of its antiemetic properties, preventing vomiting. Um, however, paradoxically, chronic cannabis use has also been associated with something called cannabinoid or cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, CHS. And so it's thought that, well, if you have CVS, the, the cyclic vomiting syndrome, and you use cannabis, you might have CHS. So the team sought to characterize patterns of use by patients with CVS and try to identify those that could be reclassified as having a, um, you know, the, the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. They looked at 140 patients and they, um, and they found uh, a couple of things. So here are the three factoids. Did they find that only one user reported resolution of CVS symptoms, that is cyclic vomiting syndromes, after abstaining for cannabis for one month. Number two, most CVS patients report that cannabis did not help with their symptoms or, and or that 21% of the cyclic vomiting syndrome population, CVS population, appear to be regular users of cannabis. Um, you're welcome to ask clarifying questions um, if that'll help. Um, but basically here what we're trying to suss out um, is, you know, the first fact again, did they find that only one user reported resolution of the vomiting syndrome after abstaining for cannabis for one month? That is not a CHS patient, a CVS patient. And is it true that most CVS patients report that cannabis did not help with their symptoms? And or number three, 21% of the population appears to be regular cannabis users in the CVS population. Sorry, there's some new alphabet soup to get used to in there. Um, anyone want to tee it off? Is there one you think is particularly uh, fishy? Um, one that just doesn't sound right? One you just don't like outright? Or maybe there's a, a rational basis? I think. Um... I'll say one that I like. I think that the 21% of CVS population appears to be regular cannabis users. I think that one's real for a few reasons. Uh, it's awfully specific. And then I just kind of also believe it because cannabis is great treatment for nausea and a lot of different circumstances. But the other two, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you, you you believe so the one uh, just to make sure I got that it's the twenty one percent of the CVS population appear to be regular users of cannabis. That's the one that seems to hit home. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing that I'm not super familiar with this um, with this syndrome, but that's just a thought. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm gonna guess that um, number two is incorrect. Um, because I think that the cannabis patients are more likely to report that the cannabis helps their CVS, but I'm not sure if that's actually true. I think that you know, the anti-emetic effects of cannabis are one of the more overblown. Uh, I hope no one gets mad at me for saying this, but the clinical data is actually a little bit on the weaker side. Um, and I think that more of the therapeutic effects of cannabis uh, have a little bit more meat behind them than the anti-emetic effect. So I, I think that... Um, it cuts deep, Sarah, what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like one in three are true and number two is not. Excellent. Well, that's Sarah's bet. Um, Nigam, do you, do you follow that or do you have your own system? One being true, two being false three being true right do you concur do you do you think 
Yeah, so it kind of the so I said I think three is true. Sarah's saying she thinks two is false, which does not combat what I'm saying because it's only three is only twenty one percent, so that leaves the most for Sarah's number two to be true. Um how many people were in the study, Jahan? I'm trying to assess. Uh, 140 with um, diagnosed with CVS, the the generalized cyclic vomiting syndrome. This is a hard. This is a hard game you've posed here, Jahan. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to combat Sarah. I'll. I'll go with Sarah's thing. I'll. I'll, t- I'll follow her in this one. See where it goes. Okay. All right. Yeah, so I'll join that bandwagon um, for lack of any uh, better oh gosh. science or. Now idea. I know what a, a blackjack dealer feels like when everyone stays. It's like, okay, <laughs> let's see him bust. Um, so we'll start with number three. 21% of the cyclic vomiting syndrome population appears to be regular users of cannabis. This was indeed reported by the study. Let's go to number one, right? Only one user reported resolution of CVS after abstaining for cannabis for one month. Now, I like this factoid because again, they weren't really looking at a CA, a, a, a cannabinoid hyperemesis population. They were looking at a different diagnosis to see if they could reclassify people. And this factoid was indeed actually reported and almost pulled word for word out of the article when they looked at this population only um one of the cvs cannabis users reported that they had resolutions of their symptoms um and so that means that number two is false it was indeed reported by the journal that most cvs patients where the cannabis actually does help with their symptoms or appears to help with their symptoms well done group to sniff out the truth (laughs) I tried to make it a little slippery. I saw you guys stumbling, but but you made it through like two burglars and home alone. It's nice. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, that's our show for today. I want to thank everyone for their time, uh, their patience, and just sharing their knowledge with all of us here. Uh, this has been a fun conversation on a, on a great number of topics. Uh, Sarah, David, thank you so much for again helping us with this uh, podcast and we look forward to having you on future episodes can't wait i had so much fun thanks for letting me join again guys it's a blast awesome and thank you for listening to how to launch an industry 